the free for all roundtable brought to you by lexus avon canada's newest lexus dealer near canada's wonderland in the maple auto mall luxury is closer than you think round one on round one today, John Tory Jr. is an airline industry expert. Laura Babcock is here from Power Group Communications, host of the O Show. John Burnside, Toronto City Councillor, has joined me in studio where we are currently hatching baby chicks. Surely you're not going to survive in that layer for long. Hey, listen, I'd rather be here than outside. Yeah, that's true. Okay, so listen, let's start digging into things. Uh, For example, a girl now 14, which means she was either 13 or 12 at the time that she allegedly helped to kill a man in downtown Toronto, was busted again this weekend for allegedly stabbing a man. Uh, John Tory Jr., you know, few things play into Jerry Agar's ethos of soft on crime than having somebody who's accused of murdering somebody on the loose able to commit another crime allegedly yeah the whole thing is just insane to me i get we want to have a system where we want to make sure everybody's treated equitably and that you're innocent until proven guilty and i also get that we want to be kinder to younger people because they're generally presumed to sort of not know the error of their ways but when someone is involved in a particularly violent random attack like this swarming and and now it's been proven like this clearly another one there should be a bias against that person getting bail i she should not have been out i just don't think she should have been out not without some maybe some serious psychological testing to determine whether or not she's likely to just go out and do this again and now we know that she has. I still think legally she's innocent until proven guilty, but she should be innocent until proven guilty well in a place where she can't hurt people. Well, Laura Babcock, one of the problems is most often somebody like this is released into the custody of their parents. And if their parents were that good at their job, then the first thing wouldn't have happened. Well, you know, I don't want to go entirely that far because there's a lot of dynamics that go on in homes and, um, you know, there's, there can be all kinds of legacy issues and mental illness. So I don't want to just put it on the parents in the first case. But I do think bringing the person back to that same environment uh, and expecting that suddenly there's going to be some ability to restrain or restrict their movements is naive. Um, so I don't want to say that the parents caused this, but I do think that putting her back there obviously was a mistake. There wasn't the environment that could keep her from, you know, going out and doing something like this a second time. Uh, there was actually a case in the States, very interestingly, this past week, I think, John, where a mother was actually found liable for uh, a son who had caused a shooting because he exhibited a lot of behaviors and they went out and got him a gun, you know, and I think that was a first. So I, there is something to be said about what kind of parenting is going on and, and what the environments are like in the home. But yeah, if somebody is coming from a home that can't, uh, can't control or give them the kind of guidance that they need, releasing them back to that space obviously isn't a great plan. So uh, I, I don't think she should get bail a second time. Obviously, there needs to be some sort of intervention in her life as she awaits trial or wherever this goes forward. So uh, I'm glad that, you know, uh, she's back in. I hope they find the guy that was with her and uh, he doesn't get bail either. <laughs> John Burnside, I assume nothing, but I have to figure that as a former cop, stories like this drive you crazy. Yeah, not so much as a former cop. I mean, I know Jerry Jerry Agar will be speaking about this with asperity. Oh, yeah. Show's done. With oh. asperity. Asperity. Which is anger, harshness of tone and manner. So I had to get that right out. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, <laughs> I think in this situation, the onus does really switch from the emphasis on the individual to the uh, on protecting society. And so that's the first thing I'll say. And just very quickly, it reminds me of a story, a guy named Yummy Sandifer. Uh, 
uh, he was nine years old. He had killed somebody. He had ra uh, he had killed someone. He had done an armed robbery uh, and some uh, grand theft auto. And you know, it was, and he was ultimately killed at eleven by another gang member. Um, but. You found out that, you know, he had been abused since he was three, cigarette burns all over his body, mother that had 30 arrests. So I'm not going to judge her, but by the same token, there is now that onus on protecting society. And this individual, it's not like, and I don't want to minimize gang activity, but at least with gang activity, there's usually, uh, they're usually trying to make money. So there's a purpose. Just swarming people, that's a whole other level of nastiness. So um, the city looking at the possibility of a bad dog list or a bad dog owner list. John Burnside, I'll start with you. I think it's Paula Fletcher has uh, hatched this idea. And it would be even involve putting a sign in front of somebody's house saying, bad dog lives here. Yeah, and you know, she did make the, uh, she did differentiate between a dog that bites someone and mauls someone. So I, I think that's very thoughtful. Uh, but to me, like once you maul someone, then game over. I mean, I, I rescue dogs, love dogs. I mean, uh, put down the dog? Yeah. 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 I, I really do think when they maul somebody, you know, a bite for whatever reason, you know, they're playing with another dog and you get in the way and okay, f fair enough. And I have been bitten by dogs. Um, but, and I never thought it should be put down. But when you maul somebody, you get one chance at that. Goodbye. Wow. Okay. John Tory Jr., you're that hard assed about this one? So we, I have a dog. I love our dog. Our dog's a very friendly dog. And um, you just, sometimes you run into other people who have a dog that's muzzled or they say, you know, maybe he's not that great on the leash, whatever. These are owners taking appropriate steps. I fully agree with John. Once a dog gets into a mode where it, it believes it has to defend its territory or fight for its food, which is how they operate, by mauling something and then completely destroying that other something, that there's no place for that dog anymore, sign or not. And the dogs can't read the signs. They don't know that they're bad. And also, dogs all look, dogs look very similar. So how do I know from 200 feet away when I've got my kids walking with me that that's the dog from the sign? And, you know, like it's just, yeah, those dogs, they don't, there's no spot for those dogs, unfortunately. Laura Babcock, I've always said the problem with bad dogs is their owners don't think they're bad dogs. Yeah, I think there's definitely there can be some denial there. Um, you know, we've got a big friendly dog. He's really big, but he's scary to people who like, looks like a bear coming down the street, right? Maz wearing her to fly, but he can knock you over if he's running. So I always say, you know, we've got to keep him on a leash, even though he wouldn't hurt a fly. He's just large. He's 130 pounds. That's a lot for people who don't own dogs, right? So you have to be conscientious as a dog owner uh, and be aware that even though your dog might be wonderful around you, they might pose a different experience to somebody else. And in terms of, you know, the mauling, yeah, it's terrible. And, and I feel terrible for these dogs, but that's not a safe, that's not a safe situation to have a, an animal that has done that. Uh, and as for the bad dogs, I just want to say, like, it's, they're not morally bad. <laughs> they're animals. Uh, I like that the signs say dangerous. That, that's a better description. <laughs> it's not a moral issue. They're just dangerous. It's very Dalai Lama of you. I think my favorite part of this whole story is discovering there's actually a bad dog tribunal. And I just wonder, you know, I would like to call Princess to the stand. <laughs> okay. Uh, let's talk about another hazard. Everything is concern trolling today. But I buy it that having too many um, food delivery bikes, both motorized and non, aboard the GO train system is not the greatest of ideas. Uh, Laura Babcock, I also notice on the subway, you're allowed to have a bicycle on the subway from, I think, 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. And sometimes you end up climbing over a lot of them. 
Yeah, I found this story fascinating because I haven't really been into the, you know, Uber Eats food ordering thing, but boy, are my teenagers. And I didn't realize that people are taking their e-bikes all the way to downtown, you know, uh, to, to do these shifts. And so they need to get in there. So I hadn't thought of that multimodal kind of aspect. I knew some people ride their bikes in Toronto. My husband brings his bike in the good weather on the go bus and stuff. But all those e-bikes, when you actually see the photo, it is kind of daunting. You know, it's kind of claustrophobic. That's a whole lot of bikes. And the fact that some of them have batteries that catch fire, uh, the go just needs to adapt and they need to, or the MTTC needs to adapt. They need to put on Metrolinks more of these bike cars that are exclusive for these bikes. Uh, if that's going to be what we're promoting, we want to have more cycling. It's better in cities. As we know, Paris is trying to go all the way there. I was in Tokyo 35 years ago and it was tons of bikes. If that's where we're going, then you've got to start to accommodate the transportation of these bikes more safely. John Tory Jr., I certainly notice an awful lot of bikes on the subway in my neighborhood, but that's because a lot of people get on the subway in order to avoid a hill before they get to St. Clair. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of reasons people use public transit and we need to keep encouraging that. And I think the article that we were reviewing in this sense, it, it speaks very interestingly to our economic dynamic about how this is where people are finding their work and their opportunity coming in uh, from other communities, especially outside of Toronto in the GO Transit situation in order to do this bike delivery. So I just, I found that interesting, but I will point out a back to safety, which is where I always start with this stuff. Uh, there's a reason that in the airline industry, those batteries that you find in those vehicles are essentially banned on planes, uh, unless they're in very specific types of packaging and they meet a certain standard. And then even then, you can only have so many of them on a, in an aircraft at any given time. They are extremely volatile when they get damaged, even slightly damaged, and they will start a very, very high energy fire as we are seeing. So I think the lens here has to be safety first, and we start absolutely first and foremost from there. Perhaps consider making a, a downtown locker near Union Station where people can leave the batteries at the end of the day and charge them, and then just wheel the bike home and bring it back. Interesting thinking. A new study suggests safe injection sites do actually save lives. We'll be talking with the study author at 9.05. There's a lot more I need to know, John Burnside, but it does confirm a lot of other studies I've seen in the past that, yes, as we debate what's going on in Leaside right now, they can lead to mayhem, but safe injection sites are keeping people alive. Right. I think we need to differentiate between safe injection sites and safe supply sites, which is out west, because that's a whole different ball game. But I mean, I'm not really surprised by this study. If you flood an area with uh, social workers armed with Narcan, would you not expect that you're going to save lives? Yeah. So that to me is, 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 is all fair. The question is at what cost? And people will say the uh, there, no cost is too great when you're saving lives. That's one perspective. The other perspective is, you know, there's mayhem, there's theft, there are all these things, associated crime that comes with it, drug dealing. And that's up, I think that's up to the local community to decide. But of course, at city council, it's the city imposes it, and don't you love it? Yeah, John Tory Jr., there are a lot of issues involved here, and I'm very sympathetic to people who complain about the mayhem, and that's putting it lightly, that exists around safe injection sites. But at the same time, this research, at the very least, concludes it's keeping people alive. Yeah, and I live about a block away from the South Riverdale Community House Centre, and so that shooting was rippling and it, it traumatized our community. Um, and, but I do, I believe that those sites do really good work. I think they're important. And I think you have to put them where a lot of people are suffering from these problems. If the people are going to have any chance getting better. I wish that the police had adequate resources. I get they can't camp out outside these places, not for the users, 
for the dealers. I wish from an investigatory standpoint, they had the resources they needed to go after the dealers and get, get those people off the streets, get them locked up, because all they're doing is somebody makes a slight improvement and then they crater again a week later due to their addiction and illness. So that's where I want resources spent. In addition to the site sites, I want them open because they save lives. I want cops being able to arrest dealers. Well, and Laura Babcock, some will argue that, okay, you stop an overdose on Tuesday, but then that person dies on Friday. Well, uh, sure, but I mean, you're, you're still saving a life and you that person is valuable to someone There's someone's son or daughter or cousin, you know, um, and for people who have lost someone to overdose, it is absolutely heartbreaking and tragic. And you, you wish that there'd been somebody nearby that could have had the, that kit to help them. Uh, so I, I'll say this, you know, Housing First has had huge success rate in getting people out of homelessness um, and helping them with their addictions or any other treatments that that they need and we need to move towards that model because there's sometimes there's both right people can be living rough and also have an opioid addiction and i just have to say you know i do that big food line in hamilton and we hit a thousand people in the line this this saturday and last week when my daughter and i were leaving we were three blocks away and we saw a young man and three others piled up in sleeping bags in a doorway like a young man on his heels injecting this is right in the main main downtown you know our most vaulted area of the city where the big old banks were and and i and i posted it and I said what is happening I've never seen that a thousand times I've been in that block and people said well we don't have the safe injection sites in the area at the moment and and that's what ends up happening so we can't pretend the problem isn't going to happen we have to give people the dignity and the safety and the support and save their life and hopefully help them transition to a better life thanks to everyone great talk Laura Babcock John Burnside John Tory Jr. hope you have a wonderful family day Catch the roundtable, round one at 745, round two at 845, weekday mornings on more in the morning. News Talk 1010 Toronto.